Welcome to the podcast of the Urban Mystic. This is season two where we meet with fellow deconstructors, fellow journeymen and journeywomen to hear the story of their first experience of God, calling to ministry, deconstruction and present journey. Well, our guest for this episode is none other than the naked pastor who assures us that you've got to look him up as a single word. So don't break it apart as naked and pastor, otherwise you're going to see things you can never unsee. <laughs> I can testify to that, people. Be careful. David has got a lot of experience uh, in the ministry after spending about 30 years in, in, in professional ministry. And now he lives in a, in a wonderful kind of space where he produces a cartoon every day, does a, a ton of writing, facilitates an online community as well, and then just, just meets with people. So he was just a wonderful personality to chat to. Yet another contributor that has spoken just very personally and very vulnerably to, to us. You know, I, I, I really I really just loved hearing David's stories and hearing his hearing his journey. And I'm looking forward to to hearing what you get out of his story. You know, one of the things that, I, that I've really enjoyed about this season, and you know, David is part of that, is that we threw this net out internationally, and it's been so cool to see how people have responded. And David is one of those guests that I just feel so grateful to for giving up his time to come and join us in this conversation. I know it's something close to his heart as it is to ours, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing what he has to share on some of his personal journey. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, great, great guy. I love his work and encourage people to go and have a look-see if they're not familiar with his work. Uh, guys, thanks for having me on your show and hello to everybody out there who's listening. Canada has got some of the finest export people in the world. I haven't met a Canadian when traveling or locally that isn't just an upstanding individual. So <laughs> I don't know what you guys are doing, whether you exile the good guys or you exiling the worst, but what you're doing must be good. Oh, no. Yeah, we're just... We're just known for being really nice people. <laughs> yeah, so mostly, I mean, we do have our, our share of not nice people, but no, it's, uh, <laughs> Canada's a very nice country. I'm, I'm glad to be here right now. Yeah, so, so just to, to start off with, to, to, to jump in, um, you know, way back in the day, uh, there's, there's some kind of mixed interaction between your first experience of God and your sense of calling. And I'm very keen to, to, to hear what that experience was and how that came together for you. Oh, no problem. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll repeat that. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, somewhere in the back of, your, uh, back of your life and your story is your first experience of God. And then there's your experience of your calling leading into your early time in ministry. And I, I'm really just, uh, I'm really interested to hear what that, what that experience of God was and how it links into your, your sense of calling and your journey into ministry. Uh, so I grew up in a, a religious home, a Christian home. And, you know, when that happens to you, it's just sort of in the air you breathe. You know, it's, it's just a part of your life. I, I remember, like, for example, uh, I lived on a farm. My, our family, we lived on a farm. And I remember seeing animals die. And when I was just a small child, and um, it was very disturbing to me, uh, it, and, and things like that got me thinking about my own death and what happens when we die. And, and I remember being very disturbed by these very, very deep questions very early in my life. And um, I, I just, 
I, I think for me, it wasn't like a, you know, a lighting of a match or anything. It was more like a gradual dawn, uh, a gradual rising of the sun kind of thing in my life where I, I just had this gradual sort of awareness of, of something greater, you know, that there was, there was a mystery that was living in a world full of mystery. Um, and that, you know, that kind of goes hand in hand with my, you know, my witnessing animals die and, um, and things like that, as well as uh, living in nature, you know, the beauty of the, the world and uh, the earth. And, uh, you know, uh, so it was a very gradual dawning, but it was when I was about 15 years old when I had <laughs> what, what we call my born again experience. And uh, I, was, I was in a youth group. I, a friend invited me to a Baptist youth group thing. We were playing floor hockey and um, they, the youth leader gave us like a talk and then said, if anybody wants to become a Christian, just stay afterwards. And, and uh, I thought, well, okay. So I stayed and uh, then this guy came up to me after and, 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 uh, made me repeat, uh, Lord Jesus, I accept you as my own personal savior and amen kind of thing and passed me the four spiritual laws track. And, uh, that was it. And, uh, I went home and I said, my mom was watching TV. My dad was working. He's a policeman, um, on shift work. I said, mom, I, I became a Christian. He goes, that's nice. And I went to bed and that was the beginning of my Christian sort of my, my Christian journey. It was very, you know, like I say, it wasn't like anything spectacular. And in fact, it was very mundane, but you know, from there, um, I, I became very involved in the youth group and the youth leader was very influential in my life, took me under his wing and mentored me. Um, I fell in love with the Bible. Um, yeah, I ended up going to Bible college. That's where I met my wife, Lisa, and went to seminary. And, you know, so it, that's, that's how uh, it's always sort of been for me is this, this kind of gradual uh, dawning of, of things. And very rarely have I had, like, burning tree experiences. <laughs> so it's quite, uh, it's quite a vanilla experience. I, I know a, a good few dozen people who tell similar stories you know in terms of you know some kind of awareness and then being at a youth group event and experiencing some form of altar call you know i you know like i like i said it, it, it's it's funny because um i i was su super committed super devout super strong believer you know but like i i say it, i i look back i can see how things sort of worked together for me to be who I was but never at the time was it like oh wow it was never like that it was like just uh you know kind of drifting down the river and you know turning a corner and, and or bending the river and seeing a new scene you know that that's what my spiritual life has kind of been like although I have had a few incidents in my life that I, I would call kind of burning bush experiences like epiphanies and that that have changed the course of my life but mostly it's been just this kind of mundane gradual warming up you know <laughs> I remember listening to a young girl in a youth camp tell a similar kind of story but from the perspective of it was just really refreshing 
to not have somebody up at the front kind of, you know, hyping up the crowd with these stories of their legs growing back or you know, <laughs> those, those kinds of things and being really struck by, by that, you know, just the coals kind of warmed over time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's very cool. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I can look back and, and, and feel my life has somehow been uh, directed you know, but never at the time has it been obvious. So it's, uh, and I, I don't know, maybe a lot of people that that's their experience. Um, and, and, uh, and I often have to encourage people, look, the, the, this is valid. Very few people do I know who have had these like mountaintop burning bush, you know, manna from heaven kind of experiences. It's just been a very kind of mundane warming up like i said and uh it's you know just to validate these people that this this is kind of normal and um not to not to think you're a second class um spiritual person because you haven't had any of these or or rarely any of these uh you know profound life-changing kind of uh experiences you know often people do get into one kind of exclusionary perspective or another people are either writing off those burning bush moments or they're trying to define everything only by those burning bush moments, and it's it's nice to it's nice to get uh, that kind of balance in. You know that actually there's 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 quite a wide range of experiences, and in a similar way, there's a wide range of deconstruction that people are doing, and many different trajectories, and yet we're all on the same human team headed in a similar direction. Or one of the peculiarities of of kind of the institutional community is that people tend to, in some ways, generate. I found every now and then those burning bush experiences because there's this kind of peer pressure sense. I've got to find a story that fits, you know, a lot of this sort of major narrative here, even though I think when you do drill down into sort of the individuals within community, you might find that that narrative is not as well shared as it might seem from the front. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, I remember it dawning on me that, you know, let's say Moses, the story of Moses and, you know, we think of the burning bush experience and, you know, we think of the low, you know, the, the plagues and then we think of, you know, him receiving the Ten Commandments or things like this. But I, I kind of added it up and it was like he might have had one of these profound historical experiences once every 40 years. That's a, that's a long time to, to go between and and not have a profound experience and, and and you know so I look back on my life and even though it's been a kind of a mundane I, I use the word mundane to sort of describe it just normal just normal and uh, but I have had a few experiences that were really life-changing and profound uh, to me you know uh, but in a way, they're kind of mundane too. Like one was a dream I had, and another was, uh, uh, well, again, another dream, <laughs> and, and you know, just uh, and another one was uh, me getting fired, and you know, kind of thing. So it's just like on the surface, it's very mundane, but it's it's for me, it's it's full of profound meaning because of what was happening at the time and what it meant at the time. So. I love that because in some ways we, we, we like to have the hard bookends, you know, the dramatic Damascus Road type type experiences as almost like the definitive beginning and end points for, for people. 
Whereas, whereas I think this kind of stuff is, is multi-layered. We, we have these softer emergent experiences over time and in, in retrospect, as well as these, these almost epiphanies and encounters along the way. And in that sense, it is a, it's, it's a both and rather than either or. Yeah, it adds, a, it adds a, a perspective and a nuancing to the experience of God that I think is tremendously valid. You know, I often talk to people and I, I ask them where their experience began for them. And some people have a clear sense of that emergence. And other people almost are writing that off because they haven't had that definitive experience that gives them yeah. a yes, as opposed to the, you know, when I look back, I can trust my experience. I can trust that emergent process in that. Yeah. Well, I remember uh, in the churches I was in as a young person and going to youth camp and, you know, even at Bible college, it was a Pentecostal Bible college and stuff where, you know, if you didn't know that, time and place where you became born again, then you weren't born again. You know, it's like <laughs> you needed to have that pivotal moment where you were born again, just like you were born in, uh, physically. Um, and uh, I remember feeling a lot of shame and confusion about that because, you know, I, I, to I told you the story of when I officially became a kind of a born again believer, but, you know, you really do have to wonder about how effective that was, you know, where I just sort of repeated some words and was handed a track that I couldn't understand from the Billy Graham Association. And, and um, nobody was there except that guy. So, it, you know, on the surface, like I said, it's kind of mundane, but for me, it, it was, it, it's kind of, um, that was kind of where I became maybe more aware and, uh, where um, I sort of started a new kind of a journey and became more committed, you know, and that's when I ended up hanging out with the youth pastor at the time and who mentored me. So, yeah, interesting. And, and David, as you, as you track the sort of, so the journey into ministry, are there moments of that, that you kind of flag along the way? You know, I, I think a lot through Richard Raw's order chaos reorder cycle which I imagine you, you're familiar with. And so the, the kind of order calling into the ministry space, you know, before that sort of whatever they are, moments or moment in which then you transition. But were there sort of moments that you remember and look back in that order sort of forming stage that you just think, sure, this was quite a journey or amazing experiences as you, as you began to explore ministry? Yeah, see, and again, here we go again. I went to Bible college as a music major because it had a really good music program and the music uh, professor there was well known. And I, and I went to that Bible college because some of my friends were going to that Bible college. I didn't know what else to do. So I just sort of went to Bible college, started the music program. Uh, I was three years in, uh, I think I might've been on my, yeah, the end of my, the end of my um, third year. And uh, I'm at Lisa and uh, she was 18 at the time. I was 21, I think. And um, we fell in love. Uh, she was studying um, missions. And at one point, like we were madly in love. Uh, and, she, and she was like, I don't see how this is going to work. If you're going to be a music pastor, I'm going to be a missionary. Like this, I can't see how this is going to work. So I, I switched majors. <laughs> I switched majors to, to Bible and theology. No, that, that's awesome. I was just saying, wow, that's, I was reflecting on a conversation we had with someone the other day and I was thinking internally, 
I wonder how many movements in ministry have happened through couples. Oh, or, absolutely. Or, wow, she's really cute. Or I wonder where he goes to school. <laughs> so, anyway, no, sorry. absolutely. Sorry. It was sorry. like I, yeah. being, being with her was more important to me than music. Mm. <laughs> music major. <laughs> so I switched to Bible and theology and suddenly our relationship could work. And then I came under the influence of some really powerful Bible scholars and stuff and started taking Greek and Hebrew. And then I went to, I was uh, the, the president of uh, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary came to visit because he was a Pentecostal and came to visit our Bible college. And it was like, uh, we'd like you to come because I was doing very well in Bible and theology. And he invited uh, some of us personally to come to Gordon Conwell because he wanted to see more Pentecostals getting masters, which was kind of rare at the time. So I thought, well, what the heck, you know, some of my friends are going, I'll go too. So I went to Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. I studied under Dr. Gordon Fee. I took, uh, I took Greek and Hebrew and New Testament studies. And my goal was, you know what, I'm enjoying this. I think maybe I'll try to become a Bible scholar and teach, become a professor and so I, I got accepted eventually. I'm, I'm making a long story short, but uh, I, I eventually got accepted at the University of Toronto at the PhD program where I was going to continue my studies in New Testament and become a New Testament scholar. But we got pregnant and we didn't know what to do because we were running out of money <laughs> and Lisa was going to have to quit work soon. I didn't know what to do. And, and, um, so at that time, and now I was in the Presbyterian Church. By this time, I was in the Presbyterian Church. And um, I, uh, so a, a, a professor said, hey, uh, Dr. Klempa, who is a Calvin scholar from Presbyterian College at McGill, is arriving by train. Can you go pick him up from the train station? And I'm like, sure. And so I went, and, uh, and a friend of mine came with me, who was also studying to, for his um, PhD, and I uh, was getting discouraged as well. And uh, Dr. Klempa, on her way on her way back to the uh, uh, University of Toronto, asked about our personal lives and stuff. And I said, "Well, right now I'm really in a quandary because I I can't seem to continue in my PhD studies because of money and everything like that. And I don't know what to do. My wife's pregnant and blah blah blah." And he's like, "Well, why don't you come to Presbyterian College? You can." study there to get your diploma of ministry for one year. We will give you a church to pastor as a student. So you have a place to live in the manse and you'll have salary. And at the end of that year, you'll have a diploma of ministry, which along with your master uh, in New Testament studies will uh, be the equivalent of a MDiv. We'll ordain you and place you in a church where you'll have a, a, a salary and a place to live, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And all your problems are solved. And I'm like, I couldn't refuse. And, um, and my buddy who was with me took the same offer. <laughs> so again, with my friends and, you know, we went off to Montreal and all that was fulfilled. All those things were fulfilled and I ended up in the ministry. So it was kind of, you know, uh, it, it's kind of the same old story, right? Where it's kind of a mundane, uh, normal, no burning bush experience, no God talking to me out of the heaven. Um, it was just sort of by accident. I kind of tripped into everything. And I like the same with ministry. I tripped into the ministry and um, there I was. Yeah. So I, I got ordained in the Presbyterian church and I served the Presbyterian church for 12 years as a pastor, planted a Presbyterian church, 
Um, but I, I struggled with ministry, my calling the whole time, the whole time I, I, I wrestled with it. Um, but you know, I did my best as a pastor. I feel, I feel I did a good job as a pastor and, you know, they thought so too. They wanted me to, they took me from one, uh, I was, I had a three point charge. I was taking care of three Presbyterian churches out in the country and they wanted me to plant a church in a, in a nearby town. Um, well, in a different province. And so I, I, I took the offer. They were like, you know, uh, here, there's a house, there's blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, well, okay. So I just, you know, they just made me an offer. I couldn't refuse. And I went and planted the church. And, you know, that just seems to be what my life has been like, where I was kind of just tripped along and ended up somewhere. <laughs> I know many people that have been in ministry and they've, they've had these struggles getting in and struggles finding good jobs and getting paid. And it seems like you had, you had an ideal run along those lines. So, so how, how is it that you landed at the point of deconstructing? I mean, was there a specific moment, event, or what was the process that led you to go, this church thing's not working? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I want to, I want to, I want to just say to anybody out there who's, you know, in the ministry or wondering about going into the ministry, like that, this is my story, you know, and I, and I know the way I'm describing it kind of demystifies the whole, like, I, I know people who, you know, wake up one day and they feel called into the ministry and, uh, it, you know, it's a very powerful feeling for them. I never felt that, but that's not to say it doesn't happen, right? I, I know the way I'm describing it is kind of demystifying and normalizing it, um, humanizing it maybe even. Um, and, and the way I'm describing it, I don't mean to say that there, there's no divinity involved, right? I don't mean to say that, although I could say that, right? It's both sides of the same coin, and that, that's something else I would have to unwrap at another time. But yeah, so Mighty Construction was actually kind of, kind of, the, kind of the, the same. It wasn't a wow moment except when it began. And, and that was uh, in seminary at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Boston. For some reason, it was close to ordination. For some reason, I was reading this book uh, that wasn't on the syllabus, on none, none of the syllabi. Uh, I, I think I was in Harvard Yard, and there was a bookstore, and I saw it on a shelf, and I liked the title, and I'm, I was intrigued by it, and I bought the book, and I started reading it. And that shook my world. Up to that point, I was... a a firm, naive, unthinking, like I assumed, let's put it this way, I assumed the inspiration and the infallibility and the inerrancy of scripture. I, I just assumed that was the case. And of course, I was at a Bible college that taught that, and I was at a um, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary that assumed that as well. So it was kind of in the air. It was just, I imbibed that idea that the Bible was inspired, infallible, inerrant. Uh, but when I read this book, I suddenly realized that that's not necessarily true. And it was devastating to me because I, I was literally on my way to graduation, the graduation ceremony, when I suddenly realized, oh my, oh my God, like this, this might, like the Bible may not be inspired infallible and errant you know like it was totally 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 devastating i was freaking out my wife actually had to hold me and tell me to calm down because i had to go into the arena to get you know uh, graduate 
um, I was really literally freaking out because that belief for me was kind of like the, the Jenga block tower. You know that game, uh, Jenga blocks? For me, that was the bottom block that was holding it all up, and that was removed, and the whole tower was shaking and, and starting to crumble because that, that was what held everything. All my belief system was held up by that one belief, right? Because my source of my belief was the Bible, or my interpretation of it, rather. And when that was pulled, that began my, my uh, deconstruction. Now, that was back in 1983. And, and, and my, my deconstruction really never completed until about 2009. So uh, that's, that was a long, slow kind of glacial melt, right? There was no, there was no profound, like traumatic moments. It was, it was just a slow, how can I integrate this, my, my doubt in the inerrancy of scripture with my Christian faith, how do I, how do I, how, how do these two stay together? And, uh, and I, and I, I had a hard time all through my ministry trying to uh, figure this out. And so it was just a long, arduous process. I know for a lot of people, they can, de- they deconstruct overnight. Not me. It took me, what, 40 years, 30, 40 years. So that's a long deconstruction. It's mirrored by a lifetime of being immersed in a worldview. And almost like pulling that one thread being pulled from within and the deconstruction happening from within. For some people, there's a, there's a stark change in worldview. You know, you're not necessarily immersed in a Christian culture from young. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it makes sense that, that that process matches that for you. But it's, it's a long process of deconstruction. Yeah. So, like, for me, it was, it was a matter of integrity uh, for me personally. Like, I was desperate to know what was true. And, and so I had gone that long in my life, say I was, I don't know, maybe I was about 25 when I graduated from seminary. And um, up to that point in my life, I'd become certain of some things. And, and so I, I didn't feel like I could just chuck everything. I, I felt I somehow had to allow this germ of questioning to enter into my computer system and and start erasing code like I, I just I just I didn't feel like I could just say ah oh, chuck it I'm, I'm walking away from all everything I'm walking away from the church and God and the, you know Christianity and I'm going to become a full-on atheist or whatever I did I didn't feel like I could do that because there were some things I had come to feel were true and, and so I, um, I, I'm sorry, I have this terrible habit of clicking a pen. So that's that clicking sound you hear as well. I'm going to put it down. And, and so I, I, I didn't feel like I could chuck everything, but I couldn't. I also knew I couldn't chuck out this question about the inerrancy of Scripture, right? I had to keep that. I had to keep that. And, and, and even though it, it was upsetting everything else in my head. Um, and so that's, that was my style of deconstructing was... Um, allowing two apparently uh, paradoxical thoughts to live together in the same brain. That was my struggle. Sure. And, and David, you said something earlier, if I can just kind of explore that a little around you know, these years in ministry. And if, if, I, if I paraphrase you well, you said you kind of battled with ministry, if I heard you correctly. 
Yeah. Is that yeah. part of, so I mean, I, I hear this kind of Genesis moment of, sure, we, you know, what, what's, what's going on with the scriptures. Um, right. So what was that journey like as you go into a parish, you know, and I hear numerous parishes to start with and planting. How does that grow and develop in, in, this, in sort of the specific moments? Are there further moments of a Sunday morning going, sure, what am, what am I going to say? Uh, visit in a home, uh, prayer moments. Uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'm asking more about the, the sort of the public life of the ministry. How, how was that and, that and that tension of living that out? Right. So um, I never felt like I was uh, being an imposter. I, I, I've always been fairly open and fairly always pushing the envelope. Um, but I always felt like we were doing it together. So like I said, I wasn't like I was advanced or, uh, you know, ahead of my congregation or, you know, more aware or enlightened than any of them. It was more like I was just as confused as everybody else (laughs) and um, that I would just try to teach as open-handedly as I possibly could without betraying myself and without offending anybody needlessly. So I was always pushing the envelope, but it, it felt like I was pushing my envelope and their envelope at the same time. You know, I do know a lot of pastors who, for example, uh, maybe lose their faith altogether, and they're, and they're living the life of a pastor as atheists and need to pretend uh, to be certain and, and believing. Uh, that would be a nightmare for me. I, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I totally understand that there, many of them feel trapped and, and things like that. Um, it's totally legitimate. I get that. But I, you know, I, I wasn't there. For me, it was more like um, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm, I'm conf- I have a lot of confusion. I have a lot of doubts and questions. And I would allow that kind of uh, posture, I guess, to leak through what I was saying. At the same time, I was young and, you know, um, strong-headed maybe, and, you know, felt, you know, I, I'm going to lead this church into the future kind of thing, like many young pastors do, until they get the pride kicked out of them over over the years. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's basically how I approached the ministry. Now, my, my hero, and I actually, you know, we'd actually met and talked several times, and I've heard him speak, and I've read all of his books. Uh, is my hero, my pastoral hero, was Eugene Peterson, um, and uh, you know, he was kind of the kind of pastor I modeled my myself after, and I think that was my way of coping with the reality of deconstruction that I was experiencing and, and being a pastor uh, in a local community. I found it very helpful. Yeah. I think there's something incredibly beautiful about what you're describing the openness, because it's been both my experience and my experience with others of, I think, especially when the questions set in after a quote unquote successful period of ministry, you know, and there's yeah. a bit of a reputation and momentum going and suddenly then the questions arise. Yeah. Uh, I, I know there's far more of a, uh, I don't want to say tendency, temptation perhaps to just kind of, you know, as you say, you cover it over and, and, and the, the pastor almost goes through into atheism while still holding the outside trappings. But I love the, the beauty of the openness that you're describing. And I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here, 
So if I am, we can always come back to it. But I'd love to know then, as the deconstruction continued to play out and then when you left, um, I'd love to know about the response of the community that you were in at that point or the, or the people who'd known you and how that played out in terms of people's response you know, with, with that journey of openness? Um, first of all, I want to make sure that I pastors who are in ministry who, who do feel they have to hide, I'm, I'm totally empathetic. There, there, there have been times I felt I had to hide, uh, but I'm very empathetic. And I, you know, I talk with pastors every day who are struggling and um, some who have left the ministry. And I, but I, I do talk with a lot of pastors who struggle very, very significantly. Anything from you know, questioning beliefs to actually having lost their faith. And it's a, it's a horrible place to be. And I totally understand. And, and my, my heart with those men and women who are, who are struggling in that way. So I just want to make that clear that uh, there wasn't a judgment call. Uh, if, if uh, a pastor's an atheist, um, I uh, totally, totally get it. I would just uh, jump in there and say it's really hard to read you as judgmental. There's 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 a lot of wisdom and empathy in uh, you know in in being able to 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 say what you just did, but but you know not for a second would I read your reflection, your process as as carrying over as a knock on anyone else and their process. Well, because uh, in I'll, 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 to answer your question, it was in 2009 when I did have an epiphany. Uh, it was in March, and it was kind of like a waking dream, and I, it, it, it changed my life. I mean, it just absolutely changed my life. I'd, up to that point, uh, I hope I've communicated this well enough. I had been in theological angst trying to marry these, all these opposing thoughts in my mind, you know, the inspiration of Scripture and what's true and what's not true and hell and the afterlife and the existence of God and, and even the historical Jesus and, you know, um, on and on and on and on. Just all, and, and, and the validity of Buddhism and, uh, you know, the validity of Islam and the validity of atheism and science and quantum physics, all this stuff, right? And, and all this stuff living in the same head. And I just refused to throw anything out that I felt was, sounded true. And, and, I, and one of my favorite theologians, Karl Barth, said, uh, don't try to skirt around an issue. You go through the issue. And, and, and so that's what I was doing. I refused to skirt around this issue. Um, there must be a way where these opposing thoughts can make sense. And I, I remember, I remember <clears throat> thinking the only way I'm going to figure this out is, is I'm here, I, I set up a system. I'm going to study Christianity. Okay, I got that down. I've been studying Christianity a lot. Now, the next logical step would be Judaism. So I studied Judaism for a long time, trying to figure out, okay, how, how, why would God throw Jews into hell if they don't convert? So yeah, I had to figure that. I had to figure that out because that that is Christian theology, right? If you, unless you become Christian and convert from Judaism, you're going to hell. And and so I had to figure this out. So I worked. I I got through Judaism. You know, I did a lot of study in Judaism. And then the next logical step was Islam. And so I studied Islam because of, you know, the three religions rooted in Abraham and so on and so forth and studied all that because why would God throw a good Muslim into hell? Uh, and because I knew good Muslims. I knew good Jews. I knew good Buddhists. I knew good atheists. They were better people than me. And I, I couldn't figure out why. You know, so I, I went through this whole system. And by the end of it, it was like it still didn't make sense. It didn't help. 
it made things worse. And, and so um, I was living in this theological angst. And then, you know, I was pastoring, finally, uh, my last church was a vineyard church. Um, I was pastoring. I, I had gay friends. And they're like, you're affirming? I'm like, yeah. Uh, can, can we come to your church? I'm like, I'd love you to come to my church. And so I had some gay friends coming to the church and everything was fine until one lesbian couple held hands. And I knew, oh shit, <laughs> here we go. Because sure. um, I, I personally didn't have a problem, but a lot of people did. And then, then the, you know, now the vineyard in Canada, um, you know, I've been, oh, I'm not even going to go there. At that time, it was, it was a problem and we had to talk about it. And, and so I'm trying to figure out why would God throw gay people in the hell? Like, seriously, I studied that and still didn't help because, you know, all these issues in my head. Anyway, in 2009, I was saying in March, I had this epiphany and I basically all I saw was waterfalls. Now, I don't, I, unless you want me to, I, I, I don't want to tell the whole story. But basically what I came out of that, I saw waterfalls and this sort of vision dreamy thing I had. I knew I, I had immediate peace of mind. All my theological angst vanished. I knew in my knower that we're all connected at a deep fundamental level. There's only one reality, but there's many interpretations and there's many explanations. And, but there's just one reality and we're all just trying to understand it and explain it and convert people to our way of understanding and explaining it. But it's all, there's just one reality. And I, that the peace that came over me, that when I realized that all this stuff, you remember my issues with why would God throw Jews to hell and, and Muslims to hell and Buddhists to hell and atheists to hell, basically because they're just not using the right words. And um, they're not understanding through the right filter, my filter, and, and, uh, and, and so on. So when I had that thing happen in 2009, it was profound. It was so profound. And, and, and the peace of mind that came has never gone. I, I just have this absolute peace of mind. I'm not saying my life is peaceful, but my mind is um, when it comes to theology and stuff like that. And, and uh, I just started to, uh, I'd already been doing my blog for like five years, and I just started to share this on my blog, you know, my, my vision of what I, what, I, what I saw and what I thought. I didn't think anything about it because people in my church were like, why would we read your blog? We already have to listen to you once a week. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, felt, I felt pretty safe, but other people were reading my blog and were contacting headquarters <laughs> and contacting leadership in my church and people in the, in the same city were talking. Your, your pastor seems to have become and the accusations was anything from universalist to uh, a backslidden and non-believer and atheist and blah 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 and i just realized when i got a call from headquarters basically saying we'd like you to run your blog post through us first i knew my time was up and it was a year later i i resigned because i just didn't feel i could grow anymore there so in 2010 i uh, about exactly a year later i i uh after a meeting of significant leaders in the church where they expressed their concern and, and stuff, I just 
when I left that meeting, I texted Lisa, who was at work at the time, honey, I'm done. And she said, I am too. And I resigned and I was gone within the month and they replaced me with another pastor. And that was, that was, two, that was 10 years ago. But may I ask that, that moment of leaving, would you be willing to share any of the emotions that come packaged in such a momentous sort of transition? The moment of leaving? Yeah, uh, that, sort of, that, that moment where you, where you leave that meeting and the texting. Oh, that meeting. Well, it was, yeah, it was, it was a cold night. I think there was snow falling very lightly, but I could still, there, there, I could see the moon through the haze. And it was dark and cold and the full moon. And I felt this incredible. I'd always wanted to know exactly the moment when it was time for me to go. I always wanted clarity because I didn't want to leave too soon and leave the church hanging. I didn't want to leave too late and destroy the church. I, I wanted that perfect moment to be made clear to me when it was time for me to leave that was best for the church and best for me. And so when I left that meeting, it was like, I'm done and they'll be fine. And it was, I felt incredibly relieved and peaceful and certain. I just knew I I was done. I was done. It was like, it was like a plant in a pot that had gotten too small and I needed to be repotted (laughs) kind of thing. Uh, it was just it was just so clear to me, and um, the church obviously uh, I I uh, we called it a, I call it an amicable divorce that we were no longer really compatible um, theologically, and it was a mutual understanding, and um, we went our separate ways. Yeah, so it was it was, and and then for the next year I lived in in complete numbness. That's another story. <laughs> sure. So there was a sort of a morning after sort of moment that stretched as well? Oh, well, uh, you mean morning M-O-R-N or morning M-O-U-R-N? <laughs> That's a very good question. I initially mentioned this in the next day, M-O-R-N-I-N-G. Was there sort of a, a switch? You talk about the numbness. That, that night, like I said, Lisa was working. So I was home alone. And I was lying on my bed and I thought, oh shit, what have I done? Because <laughs> I, 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 I suddenly realized, even though I felt clear, I, I was walking away from my paycheck. I was walking away from my vocation, my sense of meaning, my purpose in life, my, my destiny. Uh, walking away from our community. It's a great church. It's a great church. Um, my leadership team, our friends, uh, you know, we actually had to declare bankruptcy. We were so broke from being in the ministry for so long. <laughs> and then, you know, just so many things. It was like, it was the next year was, the next couple of years actually was a pretty trying time. Um, readjusting because I'd been in the church and in the ministry for so long uh, it was like I had to rediscover myself. So it was, it was a, a long trek out of there. Uh, and, you know, I, I actually, uh, I created a course called Leaving the Ministry um, to help other pastors, um, you know, uh, not experience the same devastation I did. 
but I, I really had to um, learn how to, you know, I had to refit myself for the real world, essentially. Yeah. So it was, it was pretty difficult. I've always wondered if it, if it sort of feels similar to sort of immigration story almost from one world to another. Yeah, it was, it was uh, devastating. In fact, like I, 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 I claim there's two deconstructions. One is theological, and that's when you, your beliefs are questioned. Uh, the other is ecclesiological, and that's when you leave the church. So some people, when they have a, the ecclesiological de- deconstruction, and they leave the church either because they think it's not New Testament enough or not pure enough, or there's a, been abuse, or it's boring or irrelevant or whatever, for whatever reason, they leave the church, um, and they have to learn how to live life without the church. That's a, one kind of deconstruction. Uh, but they don't necessarily deconstruct theologically. My observations are when you de- deconstruct theologically, most people end up leaving the church because it doesn't fit into their new way of thinking anymore. And um, so, you know, I had deconstructed theologically uh, and, you know, that all came to a, a real peaceful end in 2009, you remember. But then when I left the ministry in 2010, I had to learn how to deconstruct from the church and that and the ministry that was that that was really really traumatic and in fact lisa and i just about our marriage just about blew up a couple of times it was really really tough learning how to learning how to navigate in the in the world without being a a a pastor you know i i really like the way you you put those two that there's there's the theological discussion for a lot of people it's their it's their personal beliefs and, and and that's going to have an impact as to which church often for people you're going to serve in or stay in, or it's going to have an impact on whether you stay or, or leave. Then there's the ecclesiological dis, um, deconstruction that that I think is the case for most people, where where for whatever reason they can they can easily just change from one church to another or from one movement to another or one group of thinking or brand of church or anything like that but then but then obviously there's a knock on for people that are that are in ministry as well it's it's not there's a big difference to being a church leader in a sense and going through either of those deconstructions and just being you know in 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 the church and being a member of faith and a consumer and that kind of stuff but in terms of deconstruction where where, where do you think of yourself now because you know we've we've chatted to a number of people whose deconstruction takes them to different places you know some people's deconstruction leads them to a reinterpretation of church and redefines their work others leads them to seek to redefine ministry and the way church is done and for other people it's a question of going well i i I don't know if i fit within this broader fold or this broader banner called christianity anymore i also did a course on how to how to deconstruct in that course I, i explain um the, the phases of deconstruction, uh, and I kind of compare them to the stages of grief that uh, Kubler-Ross constructed. We're discouraged from calling them state. The better word now is phrases where, or phases where you, yeah, so we, now they, instead of calling them stages of grief or death and dying, uh, we, we, we call, I think the better word is phases where you, you kind of phase in and out maybe uh, and circle around and do them again, or you go deeper or you skip one or whatever. And so I've, I kind of use that as a model, you know, where uh, in our deconstruction, we might at first be uh, in denial and then we're angry and then we bargain 
and then we get depressed <laughs> and then we finally accept. And, and so I would say I'm, I'm in that acceptance stage where it's, like I said, that, that, rub, that sort of a, uh, epiphany I had in 2009 with that waterfall and where I saw that we're all one and the only thing that seems to divide us is uh, our, our thoughts and words. That to me, that's where I'm at. Um, and so uh, I'm very resistant to being labeled. Uh, I don't label myself. Other people are uh, inclined to, but that's their issue. That's not my issue. Uh, I just, I'm, I'm comfortable in this place of mystery where all, all, all these things are at one. Um, in, in my mind, there's been an integration of, of all these seemingly opposing and contradictory and paradoxical ways of thought. Um, because to me, it's just words. Um, and, and, and language. And uh, so uh, it's like one of my favorite philosophers, Krishnamurti says, the word is not the thing. And uh, if we could just understand that, um, that there is something beyond the language we're using, or what is beyond the language we're using. And, and, and so, like I said, I'm in a very peaceful place where the, where the, challenge, where the challenge comes in is when I try to articulate it, um, when I try to explain it, um, because it's a very, uh, it's not complicated, it's very simple, but it's very paradoxical. And, and the language, you know, uh, uh, for me, when I'm reading, say, the mystics, or I'm reading uh, philosophy, or I'm reading quantum physics, they all start sounding kind of the same. That in that kind of realm, it starts sounding like they're describing the same kind of world. And so that's where I'm, I'm most comfortable breathing um, in, that, in that realm of mysticism and philosophy and quantum physics where everything's connected in a mysterious way that we can't even understand, comprehend, or explain. And, and that, you know, I'm connected to you guys, you're connected to me, and there's, but there's only one reality. And, um, you know, your, the words you use to describe it might be different than mine, but that doesn't change that one reality that we all participate in. So uh, that's, that's where I'm at. And, uh, but that's, for me, it's very peaceful. But my, this peacefulness that I feel is very offensive to, to some people and um, very disturbing to some people. And, and I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, exact enough or... I'm not using the right words or I'm avoiding using certain words or, or whatever. Right. So um, that, that's where I'm at. I'm peaceful inside, but I seem to experience a lot of conflict <laughs> in the world. Yeah. It's a, it's a question of peacefulness as a, as almost a state of being and relating rather than necessarily peaceful being the description for what's happening on the surface of life. Right. It's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like the river in front of my place. I live in, in, on a river called the Kennebecasis River, and it's a huge river and very deep. But at the, at the, like every day the river looks different. Every day it looks different. It could look like the ocean out there with huge white caps and, uh, you know, crashing on the shore and brown with the mud that it's stirring up. And then other times it's as calm as ice, you know, as smooth as ice. Uh, but it doesn't matter. At the deepest level, it's still and calm and unmoving. And um, so that that's kind of describes 
I think uh, for many of us are spiritualized. Everything can be choppy and everything can be, or calm, or it doesn't matter. That's just the, the surface. When you go deep enough, that, that peace and stillness and poise, and uh, it, it's there uh, if you go deep enough. And that's also a good metaphor, actually, for, um, you know, the community, uh, the, the, the world we live in, the community of the, the human race, where there's all kinds of manifestations and expressions, but it's one river. It's just one thing, but it, it has all kinds of expressions, but it's still the one thing. And, and, you know, I think, I think um, uh, too often uh, religions that tend to want to be exclusive and want to be right, want to be the best and aspire to be the top, uh, it's like dipping in a cup into the river and pointing to it and saying, this is the river. And this is the way you must understand the river. Uh, and, but, you know, you look out and you see you know, gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of water flow, flowing by. Uh, in one way, the person's right. That is the river in that glass, but it's not the whole river. It's just one little tiny bit of the river. And, and that's what I think, that's for me a metaphor of the human race and, and different religions attempts to um, isolate and divide and be exclusive. Absolutely. I remember listening to the head of the, the Anglican seminary in South Africa describing the idea of, you know, you sit in a valley and you see the storm up in the sky and you see the lightning touch the ground and then you travel to the next door valley and you try to tell them about the storm that you own in your valley and the lightning touches the ground close to your village and there's this wonderful thing happening. And the people in the, in the, you know, the valley next door to you say, yes, we have the same. And you say, no, you don't. <laughs> we have the storm in our valley and it's our lightning and it's, you know, it's our God. And, and he likens the idea to the storm covers, you know, it goes up over the mountain and into the next valley and it is the same storm and lightning touches in different places. Um, it just reminds me of that story as you speak of the river. Well, it's, uh, it's like uh, Karl Barth use the analogy of a, me a meteor hitting the earth and leaving a crater. And, you know, I've visited craters. There's a huge crater out in Arizona that uh, I've visited. And it's just this huge hole in the ground. But it's surrounded by tourism. And he compared that to the church and revelation. To him, the revelation is the meteor. But the church gathers around the crater and makes something of it. Uh, it, the impact that the revelation has had on the world. And, um, and, and I, it's the same, it's the same in comparison to that storm. You know, I, I did one cartoon uh, where there's uh, three different people at a well, uh, they each have their own well and their well is dug way, way down into the same water table. But each one is saying, I have the living water. The next guy says, I have the living water. And the last guy says, no, I have the living water. But they're all tapped into the same water table. Yeah. I, I love that. One of the, one of the people that I read um, is uh, J.S. Kruger, uh, Quibus Kruger, like phenomenal, phenomenal old guy now and quite, quite the academic. His recent work, uh, work is uh, titled Signpost to Spirituality. And he makes use of this, this analogy of these base camps 
you know, and, and basically says that if, if you if you stand anywhere on the earth and you look to the horizon and you head off in that direction, you know, some people go to the mountains, some people go to the ocean, some people go to the forest. And and, and are arriving there, they feel they've arrived somewhere and they set up a base camp. And but but the base camp is 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 a is a staging post for going further. And what many of the religions have become is those base camps around which we which no longer serve as our point of departure for the journey that we've got to take further. But they actually serve as the anchor point for our for our ideas and our civilizations that we use to define ourselves and in many ways divide from other people, you know. And so in that sense, it's it's a question of going of recognizing that that we live on a on on a world. There's a broad canvas, you know. There's a the, the world is quite broad, and people have gone off in different directions. And it's almost like the direction they've gone off, or just the experiences that they found, they've majored on. And then later on in life, particularly in modernity, what we've made of religion is not necessarily what those guys and girls earlier in history would have had they been exposed to each other. Because obviously they separated by, by, by geography and politics and, and, and time. You know? And so you don't get to put many of those great contributors together. And and what we have in our day and age is this is 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 almost an interesting process where where you know it's, it, the the first council for a parliament of world religions was was uh, 1893 I believe so just before the 1900s and it's it's only in the early 1900s that 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 people started putting forward or started recognizing that spiritual experience is not the province of a singular people every people has ha, have the questions that we have around this are actually you know, they're just they're just over 200 years old, in a sense of some of the ways that we're grappling with, and we didn't necessarily start off asking the right questions, or framing the conversation correctly, or in a way that was helpful. And so, in some ways, we we are left in this in this position where the world's spiritual heritage is available to us as people, and we're not necessarily making the best of it. So we've got these these riches of wisdom for living, the of uh, of directions that people are pointing off, because you know that. The, the reductionism that people have is that always try to reduce things to the singular experience as opposed to going, you know, people have, people have different valid experiences, but we do share that one reality, you know, and, um, and, and I definitely think that the conversation could move on in many ways from the ways in which these questions have been phrased and where the tensions have been phrased uh, between religions and between religion and science and that kind of stuff. And, and in that sense, it's, it's really refreshing to, to speak to you and listen to you speak tonight where, where, where there is a sense of, 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 that, of that unity, of the, of the oneness of everything. You know, at the end of the day, we all, at the very least, have very similar looking human bodies, <laughs> you know, two eyes, two ears, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we stand on the same ball, you know, the same, the same planet. And so, so, so much of what we have is our artificial construction in between. Our civilizations, our politics, our religion, they're, they're human products, human products in relation to the cosmos and the transcendent, you know, and um, yeah, it's just, it's just refreshing to, to, to hear you speak with such uh, grace from within your process and such, I don't know, uh, there's a word for it and I don't have the word for it, but it's very affirming. <laughs> you know, this, this reminds me of, uh, it was around 2000. And uh, uh, Francis, Francis Schaeffer, I think, the Crystal Cathedral guy um, in California, he had Billy Graham on as a guest. And um, I, I saw this clip, or else I saw the show. I can't remember what. But anyway, uh, he was interviewing Billy Graham. And Billy Graham said something to the effect, yeah, when I was in Tibet, 
I met this Tibetan Buddhist monk and um, we, we talked and uh, through a translator, obviously, but he said, I, I could sense the spirit of Christ in that man. He didn't have a word for it. He'd never heard of Jesus, but I could, I, I could sense the spirit of Jesus in that man. And Francis Schaeffer's like, oh, there's a wideness in God's mercy. And, um, and, I remember, <laughs> and I remember laughing, saying, oh, my God, the Billy Graham Association, they're scrambling right now because that is a radical thing to say for a Baptist. And, and, um, and, uh, but you know, anyway, that I just reminded me of that story, how, um, even Billy Graham could sense something more beyond the words, right? There's something, the word is not the thing. And, um, anyway, I appreciated that moment. Oh, that is special. Yeah. And, and David, so your, your current sort of day-to-day life and work, you seem to have a, a, a number of things on the go as I've, followed parts of your life and your online expression what uh, what fills the day-to-day uh, major projects thrust calling of your life at the moment well um i i draw i try to draw a cartoon every day and write a post every day and then i um i i like to write um so i just published my ninth book um till doubt do us part um, oh that's an awesome title till doubt do us part yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. When changing beliefs change your marriage. And uh, because I've seen a lot of couples' uh, marriages blow up when one or both deconstruct. And um, so I want to help people, help guide them through that traumatic process together. Some marriages won't make it, but some can. Mine and Lisa's marriage made it. Almost didn't, but it we did and we're better for it. So that's my latest thing. And so, you know, I have a lot of book ideas and then I create courses. I also run an online community I facilitate called The Lasting Supper for people who are deconstructing and uh, or leaving the church or whatever, or the ministry and need a place, a safe space to uh, vent and question and explore uh, without being criticized or judged or corrected uh, or advised. So uh, I do that. And I, I get interviewed a few times a week. And uh, I uh, just love hanging out with my wife when she's off. And our three kids are grown up and, you know, live around. But, uh, yeah, we just love hanging out. And, uh, yeah, that's my life. I, I just do naked pastor full time. 